Section 22 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides through Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Friday, 22nd October. Before Dr. Johnson came to breakfast, Lady Lockby said he was a dungeon of wit, a very common phrase in Scotland to express a profoundness of intellect, though he afterwards told me that he had never heard it. She proposed that he should have some cold sheep's head for breakfast. Sir Alan seemed displeased at his sister's vulgarity, and wondered how such a thought should come into her head. From a mischievous love of sport, I took the lady's part, and very gravely said, I think it is but fair to give him an offer of it. If he does not choose it, he may let it alone. I think so, said the lady, looking at her brother with an air of victory. Sir Alan, finding the matter desperate, strutted about the room and took snuff. When Dr. Johnson came in, she called to him, "'Do you choose any cold sheep's head, sir?' "'No, madam,' said he, with a tone of surprise and anger. "'It is here, sir,' said she, supposing he had refused it to save the trouble of bringing it in. They thus went on at cross-purposes till he confirmed his refusal in a manner not to be misunderstood, while I sat quietly by and enjoyed my success.' After breakfast we surveyed the old castle, in the pit or dungeon of which Lochby had some years before taken upon him to imprison several persons, and though he had been fined a considerable sum by the court of justiciary, he was so little affected by it that while we were examining the dungeon he said to me with a smile, "'Your father knows something of this,' alluding to my father's having sat as one of the judges on his trial." Sir Alan whispered me that the laird could not be persuaded that he had lost his heritable jurisdiction. We then set out for the ferry by which we were to cross to the mainland of Argyleshire. Lockby and Sir Alan accompanied us. We were told much of a war-saddle on which this reputed Don Quixote used to be mounted. But we did not see it, for the young laird had applied it to a less noble purpose, having taken it to Fulkirk Fair with a drove of black cattle. We bade adieu to Lochby and to our very kind conductor, Sir Alan Maclean, on the shore of Mull, and then got into the ferry-boat, the bottom of which was strewed with branches of trees or bushes, upon which we sat. We had a good day and a fine passage, and in the evening landed at Oban, where we found a tolerable inn. After having been so long confined at different times in islands, from which it was always uncertain when we could get away, it was comfortable to be now on the mainland, and to know that if in health we might get to any place in Scotland or England in a certain number of days. Here we discovered, from the conjectures which were formed, that the people on the mainland were entirely ignorant of our motions, for in a Glasgow newspaper we found a paragraph which, as it contains a just and well-turned compliment to my illustrious friend, I shall insert. We are well assured that Dr. Johnson is confined by tempestuous weather to the Isle of Skye, it being unsafe to venture in a small boat upon such a stormy surge as is very common there at this time of the year. Such a philosopher, detained on an almost barren island, resembles a whale left upon the strand. 
the latter will be welcome to everybody on account of his oil, his bone, etc., and the other will charm his companions and the rude inhabitants with his superior knowledge and wisdom, calm resignation and unbounded benevolence. Saturday, 23rd October. After a good night's rest, we breakfasted at our leisure. We talked of Goldsmith's Traveller, of which Dr. Johnson spoke highly, and while I was helping him on with his great coat, he repeated from it the character of the British nation, which he did with such energy that the tears started into his eye. Stern o'er each bosom, raisin holds her state, with daring aims irregularly great, pride in their port, defiance in their eye, I see the lords of humankind pass by, intent on high designs, a thoughtful band, by forms unfashioned, fresh from nature's hand. Fierce in their native hardiness of soul, true to imagined right above control, while even the peasant boasts these rights to scan, and learns to venerate himself as man. We could get but one bridle here, which according to the maxim de tour digniori, was appropriated to Dr. Johnson's shelty. I and Joseph rode with halters. We crossed in a ferry-boat a pretty wide lake, and on the farther side of it, close by the shore, found a hut for our inn. We were much wet. I changed my clothes in part, and was at pains to get myself well dried. Dr. Johnson resolutely kept on all his clothes, wet as they were, letting them steam before the smoky turf fire. I thought him in the wrong, but his firmness was, perhaps, a species of heroism. I remember but little of our conversation. I mentioned Shenstone's saying of Pope that he had the art of condensing sense more than anybody. Dr. Johnson said, It is not true, sir. There is more sense in a line of Cowley than in a page or a sentence or ten lines, I am not quite certain of the very phrase, of Pope. He maintained that Archibald, Duke of Argyle, was a narrow man. I wondered at this and observed that his building, so great a house as Inverary, was not like a narrow man. Sir, said he, when a narrow man has resolved to build a house, he builds it like another man. But Archibald, Duke of Argyle, was narrow in his ordinary expenses, in his quotidian expenses. The distinction is very just. It is in the ordinary expenses of life that a man's liberality or narrowness is to be discovered. I never heard the word quotidian in this sense, and I imagined it to be a word of Dr. Johnson's own fabrication, but I have since found it in Young's Night Thoughts, Night Fifth, Death's a Destroyer of Quotidian Prey, and in my friend's dictionary, supported by the authorities of Charles I and Dr. Dunn. It rained very hard as we journeyed on after dinner, the roar of torrents from the mountains as we passed along in the dusk and the other circumstances attending our ride this evening have been mentioned with as much animation by Dr. Johnson that I shall not attempt to say anything on the subject. We got a night to Inverary where we found an excellent inn. Even here Dr. Johnson will not change his wet clothes. The prospect of good accommodation cheered us much. We supped well and after supper, Dr. Johnson, whom I had not seen taste any fermented liquor during all our travels, called for a gill of whisky. 
come,' said he. "'Let me know what it is that makes a Scotchman happy.' He drank it all but a drop, which I begged leave to pour into my glass, that I might say we had drunk whisky together. I proposed Mrs. Thrale should be our toast. He would not have her drunk in whisky, but rather some insular lady. So he drank one of the ladies whom we had lately left.' He owned to-night that he got as good a room and bed as at an English inn. I had here the pleasure of finding a letter from home, which relieved me from the anxiety I had suffered in consequence of not having received any account of my family for many weeks. I also found a letter from Mr. Garrick, which was as regal, as agreeable as a pineapple would be in a desert. He had favoured me with his correspondence for many years, and when Dr. Johnson and I were at Inverness, I had written to him as follows. Inverness, Sunday, 29 August, 1773. My dear sir, here I am and Mr. Samuel Johnson actually with me. We are a night at Forays, in coming to which, in the dusk of the evening, we passed over the bleak and blasted heath where Macbeth met the witches. Your old preceptor repeated with much solemnity the speech, How far is called to forays? What are these so withered and so wild in their attire, etc.? This day we visited the ruins of Macbeth's castle at Inverness. I have had great romantic satisfaction in seeing Johnson upon the classical scenes of Shakespeare in Scotland, which I really looked upon as almost as improbable as that Burnham Wood should come to Dunsinane. Indeed, as I have always been accustomed to view him as a permanent London object, it would not be much more wonderful to me to see St Paul's Church moving along where we now are. As yet we have travelled in post-chaises, but tomorrow we are to mount on horseback and ascend into the mountains by Fort Augustus, and so on to the ferry where we are to cross to Skye. We shall see that island fully, and then visit some more of the Hebrides, after which we are to land in Argyleshire, proceed by Glasgow to Auchinleck, repose there a competent time, and then return to Edinburgh, from whence the Rambler will depart for old England again, as soon as he finds it convenient. Hitherto we have had a very prosperous expedition. I flatter myself, servitor ad imum, qualis ab incepto processorit. He is in excellent spirits, and I have a rich journal of his conversation. Look back, Davy, to Lichfield, run up through the time that has elapsed since you first knew Mr. Johnson, and enjoy with me his present extraordinary tour. I could not resist the impulse of writing to you from this place. The situation of the old castle corresponds exactly to Shakespeare's description. While we were there today, it happened oddly that a raven perched upon one of the chimney-tops and croaked. Then I, in my turn, repeated, The raven himself is horse, that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. I wish you had been with us. Think what enthusiastic happiness I shall have to see Mr. Samuel Johnson walking among the romantic rocks and woods of my ancestors at Auchinleck. Write to me at Edinburgh. You owe me his verses on Great George and Tuneful Sibber, and the bad verses which led him to make his fine ones on Phillips the musician. Keep your promise and let me have them. I offer my very best compliments to Mrs. Garrick, and ever am your warm admirer and friend, James Boswell. To David Garrick, Esquire, London. 
His answer was as follows. Hampton, September 14, 1773. Dear Sir, you stole away from London and left us all in the lurch, for we expected you one night at the club and knew nothing of your departure. Had I paid you what I owed you for the book you bought for me, I should only have grieved for the loss of your company and slept with a quiet conscience. But wounded as it is, it must remain so till I see you again, though I am sure our good friend Mr. Johnson will discharge the debt for me, if you will let him. Your account of your journey in Fores, the Raven, Old Castle, etc., made me half mad. Are you not rather too late in the year for fine weather, which is the life and soul of seeing places? I hope your pleasure will continue qualis ab incepto, etc. Your friend threatens me much. I only wish that he would put his threats in execution, and if he prints his play, I will forgive him. I remember he complained to you that his bookseller called for the money for some copies of his which I subscribed for, and that I desired him to call again. The truth is that my wife was not at home, and that for weeks together I have not ten shillings in my pocket. However, had it been otherwise, it was not so great a crime to draw his poetical vengeance upon me. I despise all that he can do, and am glad that I can so easily get rid of him and his ingratitude. I am hardened both to abuse and ingratitude. You, I am sure, will no more recommend your poetasters to my civility and good offices. Shall I recommend to you a play of Aeschylus, the Prometheus, published and translated by poor old Morel, who is a good scholar and an acquaintance of mine? It will be but half a guinea, and your name shall be put in the list I am making for him. You will be in very good company. Now for the epitaphs. I have no more paper, or I should have said more to you, my love and respects to Mr. Johnson, yours ever, D. Garrick. I can't write, I have the gout in my hand. To James Boswell, Esquire, Edinburgh. Sunday, 24th October. We passed the forenoon calmly and placidly. I prevailed on Dr. Johnson to read aloud Ogden's sixth sermon on prayer, which he did with a distinct expression and pleasing solemnity. He praised my favourite preacher, his elegant language and remarkable acuteness, and said he fought infidels with their own weapons. As a specimen of Ogden's manner, I insert the following passage from the sermon which Dr. Johnson now read. The preacher, after arguing against that vain philosophy which maintains, in conformity with the hard principle of eternal necessity or unchangeable predetermination, that the only effect of prayer for others, although we are exhorted to pray for them, is to produce good dispositions in ourselves towards them. Thus expresses himself. A plain man may be apt to ask, but if this then, though enjoined in the Holy Scriptures, is to be my real aim and intention, when I am taught to pray for other persons, why is it that I do not plainly so express it? Why is not the former of the petition brought nearer to the meaning? Give them, say I, to our Heavenly Father what is good. But this, I am to understand, will be as it will be, and is not for me to alter. What is it, then, that I am doing? I am desiring to become charitable myself. And why may I not plainly say so? Is there shame in it, or in piety? 
The wish is laudable. Why should I form designs to hide it? Or is it perhaps better to be brought about by indirect means, and in this artful manner? Alas, who is it that I would impose on? From whom can it be in this commerce that I desire to hide anything? When, as my saviour commands me, I have entered into my closet and shut my door, there are but two parties privy to my devotions, God and my own heart. Which of the two am I deceiving? He wished to have more books, and upon inquiring if there were any in the house, was told that a waiter had some which were brought to him. But I recollect none of them except Harvey's meditations. He thought slightingly of this admired book. He treated it with ridicule, and would not allow even the scene of the dying husband and father to be pathetic. I am not an impartial judge, for Harvey's meditations engaged my affections in my early years. He read a passage concerning the moon, ludicrously, and showed how easily he could, in the same style, make reflections on that planet, the very reverse of Harvey's, representing her as treacherous to mankind. He did this with much humour, but I have not preserved the particulars. He then indulged a playful fancy in making a meditation on a pudding, of which I hastily wrote down in his presence the following note, which, though imperfect, may serve to give my readers some idea of it. Meditation on a pudding. Let us seriously reflect on what a pudding is composed. It is composed of flour that once waved in the golden grain and drank the dews of the morning, of milk pressed from the swelling udder by the gentle hand of the beauteous milkmaid, whose beauty and innocence might have recommended a worse draught, who, while she stroked the udder, indulged no ambition thoughts of wandering in palaces, formed no plans for the destruction of her fellow creatures. Milk which is drawn from the cow, that useful animal, that eats the grass of the field, and supplies us with that which made the greatest part of the food of mankind in the age in which the poets have agreed to call golden. It is made with an egg, that miracle of nature, which the theoretical Burnett has compared to creation. An egg contains water within its beautiful smooth surface, and an unformed mass, by the incubation of the parent, becomes a regular animal, furnished with bones and sinews, and covered with feathers. Let us consider. Can there be more wanting to complete the meditation on a pudding? If more is wanting, more may be found. It contains salt, which keeps the sea from putrefaction, salt which is made the image of intellectual excellence, contributes to the formation of a pudding. In a magazine I found a saying of Dr. Johnson something to this purpose, that the happiest part of a man's life is what he passes lying awake in bed in the morning. I read it to him. He says, I may perhaps have said this, for nobody at times talks more laxly than I do. I ventured to suggest to him that this was dangerous from one of his authority. I spoke of living in the country, and upon what footing one should be with neighbours. I observed that some people were afraid of being on too easy a footing with them, from an apprehension that their time would not be their own. He made the obvious remark that it depended much on what kind of neighbours one has, whether it was desirable to be on an easy footing with them or not. 
I mentioned a certain baronet, who told me he never was happy in the country till he was not on speaking terms with his neighbours, which he contrived in different ways to bring about. Lord, said he, stuck long, but at last the fellow pounded my pigs, and then I got rid of him. Johnson. Nay, sir, my lord got rid of Sir John, and showed how little he valued him by putting his pigs in the pound. I told Dr. Johnson I was in some difficulty how to act at Inverary. I had reason to think that the Duchess of Argyle disliked me on account of my zeal in the Douglas cause, but the Duke of Argyle had always been pleased to treat me with great civility. They were now at the castle, which is a very short walk from our inn, and the question was whether I should go and pay my respects there. Dr. Johnson, to whom I had stated the case, was clear that I ought, but in his usual way he was very shy of discovering a desire to be invited there himself. Though from a conviction of the benefit of subordination to society, he has always shown great respect to persons of high rank, when he happened to be in their company, yet his pride of character has ever made him guard against any appearance of courting the great. Besides, he was impatient to go to Glasgow, where he expected letters. At the same time, he was, I believe, secretly not unwilling to have attention paid him by so great a chieftain, and so exalted a nobleman. He insisted that I should not go to the castle this day before dinner, as it would look like seeking an invitation. But, said I, if the Duke invites us to dine with him tomorrow, shall we accept? Yes, sir. I think he said to be sure but he added, he won't ask us. I mentioned that I was afraid my company might be disagreeable to the Duchess. He treated this objection with a manly disdain, that, sir, he must settle with his wife. We dined well. I went to the castle just about the time when I supposed the ladies would be retired from dinner. I sent in my name, and being shown in, found the amiable Duke sitting at the head of his table with several gentlemen. I was most politely received, and gave his grace some particulars of the curious journey which I had been making with Dr. Johnson. When we rose from table, the Duke said to me, I hope you and Dr. Johnson will dine with us tomorrow. I thanked his grace, but told him my friend was in a great hurry to get back to London. The Duke, with a kind complacency, said, He will stay one day, and I will take care he shall see this place to advantage. I said I should be sure to let him know his grace's invitation. As I was going away, the Duke said, Mr. Boswell, won't you have some tea? I thought it best to get over the meeting with the Duchess this night, so respectfully agreed. I was conducted to the drawing-room by the Duke, who announced my name. But the Duchess, who was sitting with her daughter Lord Betty Hamilton and some other ladies, took not the least notice of me. I should have been mortified at being thus coldly received by a lady of whom I, with the rest of the world, have always entertained a very high admiration, had I not been consoled by the obliging attention of the Duke. When I returned to the inn, I informed Dr. Johnson of the Duke of Argyle's invitation, with which he was much pleased, and readily accepted of it. We talked of a violent contest which was then carrying on, with a view to the next general election for Ayrshire, where one of the candidates, in order to undermine the old and established interest, 
had artfully held himself out as a champion for the independency of the county against aristocratic influence, and had persuaded several gentlemen into a resolution to oppose every candidate who was supported by peers. "'Foolish fellows,' said Dr. Johnson. "'Didn't they see that they are as much dependent upon the peers one way as the other? "'The peers have but to oppose a candidate to ensure him success. "'It is said the only way to make a pig go forward is to pull him back by the tail. "'These people must be treated like pigs.'" End of section 22